Our second reading this morning talks a lot about faith. It's from the book of Hebrews chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. Let us listen for and hear God's holy word. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith, our ancestors received approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he set out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, as in a foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked forward to the city that, was, that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, he received power of procreation, even though he was too old, and Sarah herself was barren, because he considered himself faithful who had, prom- who had promised. Therefore, from one person, and this one as good as dead, descendants were born, as many as the stars of heaven, and as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All of these died in faith without having received their promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. For people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land that they had left behind, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord, not only in the word spoken, but in and through the power of your Holy Spirit and with full assurance. Amen. Are we there yet? I bet good money that anyone who has ever traveled with children has heard this four-word phrase come from the back seat. And if your experience is anything like mine with Asher and Daniel, it's likely to have occurred even before pulling out of the driveway. Are we there yet? And I feel uniquely, uniquely qualified in my experience of handling this question, having worked in youth ministry for nearly 20 years with retreats and service projects and summer mission trips and trips just to get a meal, I got to hear this blessed phrase more than most. The nice thing now about having been away from youth ministry for as long as I have is the noisy youth who liked to help me drive the church bus from the back seat all those years ago are now adults, grown-ups with jobs. Some with kids of their own who've begun asking them that same question. A few months ago, while having pictures taken for the beautiful brochure that the PNC, PNC put together to announce my call to First Presbyterian Church, one of my former youth who was taking the pictures and now owns her own business and I got to talking. We were talking and laughing about some of these trips where I heard, are we there yet? 
coming from her and her youth group mates. Rachel, who is now in her mid-20s, reminded me of the time when we were walking in the summer heat and humidity in downtown Charlotte, North Carolina, on a mission trip. And she and her friends caught me asking, are we there yet? This trip to Charlotte was one that I made every summer while working at New Providence Presbyterian Church in Maryville. I took the middle school, took every middle school student to participate in the cross program at Myers Park Presbyterian Church. This was a trip that took us to see the unseen populations in that large city. Men in drug rehab, developmentally challenged adults in daycare and homeless who were actively living on the streets. And a part of every one of those trips was what they called the walk. It was a walk from the Urban Ministry Center, a day center that offered services to the homeless population, to St. Peter's Episcopal Church. This mile and a half walk was always led by a homeless man or woman who would stop along the way and point out places to get water, to find a safe place to sleep, to get a free meal or to use a bathroom. Places, things which we non-homeless would take for granted or would just pass by altogether without second thought. That summer's walk, which Rachel reminded me of, was led by Cora, who was a woman that when she first introduced herself, I never would have expected her to be homeless because of the way she was dressed and the way she spoke. She was so well put together. She wore a business suit and carried a professional-looking shoulder bag and spoke clearly and confidently. When I realized that she was not one of the directors of the Urban Ministry Center, but instead our guide for that afternoon's walk, I was shocked and I was embarrassed. But as I would soon find out, that would not be the only shock I received during that long, hot, familiar walk. As I mentioned, the walk starts at the Urban Ministry Center and ends at St. Peter's Episcopal Church, where we would sit in their nice air-conditioned library and hear the life story of our guide. Cora's journey to homelessness was not an unusual one. At a young age, she began to struggle with mental illness. She found herself in an abusive marriage, became addicted to prescription drugs, which led to a spree of petty crimes and then life on the street. Normally, after the story of our guide's fall into homelessness, he or she would usually tell us their redemption story, their rise from their struggle into their new life. They would talk about a psychologist at the Urban Ministry Center who helped them with their mental illness, or the drug treatment program that helped them fight their addiction, or the evening classes where they earned their GED, or the job training program that led to a steady income, and the housing assistance ministry that helped get them into an apartment, but not for Cora. Her story was incomplete. She had received the psychological and drug addiction help. She had her GED. She even had gone through the job training program. But as she shared after countless interviews, over the course of a year, she could not find a job. She was without a job, which meant she had no place to live. 
She was sleeping on a friend's couch that week, but she didn't know how long that would last. She was still waiting for the break, waiting to find a job that would finally end her time on the streets. And while it was obvious that this was disheartening for her, she did her best to stay optimistic and cheerful. She told us, I'm not going to give up hope because I have faith that God has a plan. I may still be on the streets. I may not have the job, but I'm going to keep on because my faith tells me that God has a plan. And that's the message we hear from the author of Hebrews in this 11th chapter. Keep on going. Have faith. God has a plan. The book of Hebrews as a whole speaks of faith more than any other book in the, in the New Testament. In this one chapter alone, the word faith appears 24 times. But the book of Hebrews talks of faith in a way that dip, differs from other books in the New Testament. For instance, the Apostle Paul in his letters speaks of faith very differently. For him, faith is a passive reality. That is, it's essentially a trusting acceptance of Christ's saving work as a freely given gift from God. But the faith of Hebrews is probably better understood as faithful the faith of this book and especially this chapter is an active obedience even in the fact in the face of adversity or a persevering courage when the way is unknown the author's definition of faith is given to us in the first verse now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen Frances Taylor Gensch, in her commentary on this book, says that this definition given by the author is to describe not necessarily what faith is, but rather what faith has. She writes, it already possesses in, possesses in the present what God promises in the future. This possession is partly an inward reality and partly an outward force. She goes on to explain that as people of faith today, we have confidence here and now, even as she puts it, when all hell is breaking loose. We have a confidence that the promises of God for peace, justice, mercy, and salvation can be trusted. Faith inwardly then is a response to the trustworthiness of God. And the rest of this chapter, which some refer to as the, as the Faith Hall of Fame, gives us example after example of our faithful ancestors like Abraham and Sarah who stepped out of their comfort zone trusting that God's promises would hold firm. But faith as the assurance of this hoped for, Gedge continues, is not just inward confidence in God, but it's also an outward reality. To understand this more fully, we have to take a look at the Greek word hypostasis, which in, is translated in our verses as assurance. Earlier, though, in the first chapter of Hebrew, the word hypostasis 
is used to also describe how the Son of God, Jesus, is the expression of God's hypostasis or the expression of God's very being. In other words, faith is the very being of God's promises. It's more than the inner confidence that the promises of God will reveal in the world of war, hunger, pain, addiction, and homelessness. It's an outward reality of those promises going out before us and working in more ways than we could ever hope or imagine. This is the faith that Chorus spoke about that day on our walk for the, and for the faith of the author of the book of Hebrews. This is where our, we find our hope. Our hope is in the fact that the past doesn't matter. The present is only temporary and that the future is coming and it's a future where God promises, God's hypostasis, God's very being, and that goes before us. Tony Campolo, in a sermon, tells a story that I think says the same thing in a little bit different way. I was working in Philadelphia, Campolo says, We had seven summer camps in urban neighborhoods with disadvantaged, at-risk kids. In each of these camps, we had a basketball team. At the end of the season, I got an all-star team together from these respective neighborhoods, and we staged a basketball game against the Philadelphia Eagles football team. It was a good public relations thing, Campolo says. I staged it out at Eastern University where I teach, I had them in the locker room of Eastern University, and we were all getting ready and getting hyped to go out and play this game against the Philadelphia Eagles. The kids couldn't believe it. They were, these were the stars that they had seen on television, and they were going to play against them. I said to these kids, I brought you out here to the college because I want you to imagine yourselves playing on this basketball court someday, and with God's help, you can do it. The coach from the summer camp interrupted me, and he said, don't listen to this man. People like that have told me I could escape from the ghetto, that I could make, my, make something of myself. I tried, he said. I tried. But look at me. I'm right back here where I started. So don't let him put fancy dreams in your head. Do you understand? Don't let him put fancy visions in your school. Dumbfounded, Campolo continues, I hardly knew what to say. And then it came to me. A poem by Shel Silverstein, I modified it just a bit, but I said to these young African-American kids who could see I was shocked by their coach. Listen to the mustn'ts, child. Listen to the don'ts. Listen to the never could be's. Listen to the won'ts. Listen to the never has been's. Then listen close to me. Anything can happen, child. Anything can be. Now let's go out and play some basketball. And they did. That, my friends, is the message of this morning's passage. And that's the good news of the gospel. God says, I have a future for you. I don't care where you are, 
what condition you're in, you're here on this planet because there are good things for you to do. There are great things for you to be. There may not be impressive, they may not be impressive in the world's eyes, but they're important little things. And that was Cora's story. She wasn't where she should be, but she certainly wasn't where she had been. Her faith told her that God was not done with her yet. And that's exactly what she told me and those middle school students on that hot, steamy day in Charlotte. God has a plan for you. God has a plan for all of us. And that's what the author of Hebrews is telling us this morning as well. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter where you are now. What matters is where God is taking you. And you better hold on because it's going to be a bumpy ride. Just ask those in the Faith Hall of Fame from Hebrews. Are we there yet? We're not even close. And for that we say, thanks be to God. Amen.